Hello everyone. Welcome to BrainX podcast. I'm Alok Kuthari. I come to you from Cleveland, Ohio. We hope to make this a podcast about conversations with leading figures and their work at the crossroads of machine learning and healthcare. Let me introduce myself quickly. I have spent more than 10 years in the field of machine learning doing research and development all over the world. I hope to use my background in machine learning to engage our podcast guests in interesting conversations. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mathur, who will be my co-host. Our guest today is Dr. Pallavi Tiwari. I would request Dr. Mathur to introduce Dr. Tiwari. Yep. Thanks, Alok. Hi, I'm Piyush Mathur. I'm the co-founder of BrainX and BrainX Community. I'm an anesthesiologist and an ICU physician at the Cleveland Clinic. And I'm happy to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Pallavi Tiwari. Dr. Pallavi Tiwari is currently an assistant professor of biomedical engineering and the director of Brain Image Computing Lab at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. But starting August 1st, she'll be joining University of Wisconsin-Madison as an associate professor in radiology and the co-director of imaging and radiation science in the Carbone Cancer Center. Her research interests lie in machine learning, data mining, and image analysis for personalized medicine medicine solutions in oncology and neurological disorders. Over the last 15 years, her research has focused on developing novel image analysis methods for diagnosis, prognosis, and evaluating treatment response for various types of cancers, as well as neurological disorders. Her research has so far evolved into over 60 peer-reviewed, very impactful publications 50 peer-reviewed abstracts, and 12 patents. Dr. Tiwari has been a recipient of several scientific awards, and her team has secured over $7.5 million in grant funding for research through prestigious National Cancer Institute, Department of Defense, and various foundations and state grants. Dr. Tiwari, thanks for joining us today. Your work is inspirational to many of us, and we would like to begin by asking you to talk to us about your journey solving healthcare problems using AI. Thank you, Alok and Piyush, for the kind introduction and for this invitation to share the work that we've been doing here at Case Western with the BrainX community. It's a real pleasure to be here. With regard to my journey so far, you know, let me sort of go back a little bit, you know, when, when I was a little kid back in India. I grew up in India and I was always very interested in, you know, tinkering with things and, you know, sort of just playing around and building things. So it was clear, you know, early on for me that I wanted to be an engineer. I wasn't really sure what kind of engineer I wanted to be, but I always wanted to build things. So that was that was that was clear to me. Uh, and then over time, I, you know, as I sort of started to understand and appreciate more nuances of what engineering means and what it means to build things, it became clear to me that I wanted to build things that are going to have impact in, you know, in the, in the bigger scheme of things. And sort of happened more organically for me when I, you know, took biomedical engineering as a major, you know, in my, during my undergraduate years, and then uh, very quickly got roped into research projects and got interested in machine learning and AI. And then I realized that, you know, one thing I want to continue to do is to sort of build 
things, you know, not literally, but sort of, you know, build build products and, and, and technologies that are going to have impact in, in healthcare. So that got me to apply and come to the US for my master's and PhD. And even there, I was sort of focused on developing machine learning and AI approaches for specifically back then I was focused on prostate cancer. So, you know, we were building on working on building prognostic and, and, and diagnostic tools for identifying how aggressive the prostate cancer is. Um, and towards the end of my PhD, I, I realized that, you know, I want to be in academia, continue to do all the work that I'm doing, but expand that beyond prostate cancer. So towards the end of my PhD, I came in contact with a neurosurgeon who then became my collaborator. And we were we were chatting and then he mentioned, you know, there are, you know, of course, prostate cancer is, you know, one of the leading causes of cancer related deaths in the US but there are still treatments available of prostate for prostate cancer for more recently in, in breast cancer there are personalized treatments that are becoming available but we talk about brain tumors especially glioblastoma which is one of the most aggressive brain tumors there is the median survival is between 15 to 18 months so you know very very poor survival and so his point was that you know it would really benefit the patients if there are methods available that we can then use to even if we can improve their quality of life or extend their survival by you know a, a few months that's going to have a massive impact on on this field and that really resonated with me you know back then i was i was actually considering moving you know sort of transitioning over to more neurological disorders because of you know you know my my cousin who suffers from multiple sclerosis so i was sort of more focused on neurological disorders but after talking to, to talking to the neurosurgeon colleague it became clear to me that this is sort of what i want to do you know really sort of build ai and machine learning approaches that can have impact in these patients because of just the limited amount of treatments that are available for for these patients and so that's sort of how my journey has been so far. So for the last eight to 10 years, I've been focused on developing AI and machine learning problems, um, sorry, AI and machine learning algorithms towards solving, you know, these these challenging problems in, 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 mach- in brain tumors, especially in glioblastoma. So to help and understand, uh, could, you, could you tell us what glioblastoma is and tell us what are the challenges with the prognosis and treatment of glioblastoma? Sure. So if you look at glioblastoma, it's actually the, 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 the complete name of glioblastoma, at least, you know, up until a couple of years ago, used to be glioblastoma multiform. And the, 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 the second term, multiform, actually comes from how heterogeneous the, the tumor is. So it's, a, it's a highly heterogeneous form of cancer that grows very quickly, highly malignant. And, you know, because of how malignant it is and how quickly it grows, the, the median survival, as I mentioned, is between 15 to 18 months. And unfortunately, you know, for the last 20 years or so, the treatment has been the standard treatment, which consists of surgical resection, wherein they go and take out, scoop out as much cancer as they can see, followed by chemo and radiation. And so that's sort of the standard treatment for all patients. So, you know, some patients with that treatment will live for less than six months. Some others will, you know, roughly five to 10% will live for, you know, over three years. And over three years, in this case, is considered long-term survival just because the median survival is 12 to 18 months. So, you know, as, as you know, the numbers tell, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very challenging disease to treat. I see. W- what is the machine learning problem to solve here? 
That's a great question. So there, there are few problems that we've been focused on. You know, again, as I said, it's a very heterogeneous disease. So there are a lot of problems that one could one could ask just because of, you know, because there are no solutions. So I, I can maybe talk about the problems that we are focused in, which are, you know, some of the most compelling problems in, in this field so far. So the first problem that I started working on you know, right after my PhD, after the conversation I had with my my neurosurgeon colleague was this problem of distinguishing radiation effects from tumor recurrence. So just to put this in perspective, essentially what happens is that, you know, when a brain tumor patient, let's say a glioblastoma patient comes in for treatment, they get highly aggressive doses of chemo radiation just because of how aggressive the disease is that they have to use, you know, very aggressive treatment treatment options. And because of this aggressive treatment, uh, you know, sometimes uh, roughly in 40% of patients, you know, they develop something called a radiation necrosis, which is a side effect of the aggressive radiation that these patients are getting. Now, the challenge is that this radiation necrosis looks very similar to tumor recurrence. So if you look Mm -hmm. at an MRI scan, and I'm talking about, you know, highly experienced radiologists here. So if they look at an MRI scan, and you know, they're asked whether they think it's a radiation effect or tumor recurrence, very often they can't tell because of how similar these two, two pathologies look. So that's sort of the first problem we started to work on because right now the way this is done is the, the confirmation for disease will come from, from a biopsy or a surgical resection, which means that this patient who's already undergone aggressive treatment will have to undergo another uh you know, a, 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 a aggressive resection wherein they would cut open the skull, either take a biopsy or take out the lesion only to later discover that it was a benign condition and the, the entire procedure was, was not required. So that's where we thought that machine learning could, could, could play a big role here. If we could mine meaningful features, meaningful information from MRI scans, that could then help our radiologist colleagues better appreciate the differences between radiation effects and tumor recurrence. So if they, are, if they get more confidence in their diagnosis of radiation necrosis, then the patient can avoid an unnecessary biopsy. And for patients that, you know, they can confidently say have tumor recurrence can then figure out what their next course of treatment is going to be. So that's sort of the first problem we started to attack specifically in, in brain tumors. The second problem that we've been looking at for quite some time is this problem of personalized treatment. So as I mentioned, the treatment has really not changed for these patients in the last 20 years. So which means that, you know, uh, there are patients who do well and patients who don't do well. The, The question that we wanted to ask is, can we identify a priori on the on the baseline scans that that we have access to? And, and in fact, if we can get additional information like the pathology, the biopsy that's obtained for those patients, and there's this omics data that's available, can we create a signature that can inform us on uh, what treatment will work for this patient? Or is, is chemotherapy really the right course of treatment for this patient? Because roughly 50% of the patients will fail chemotherapy, which means that there'll be a recurrence within six to eight months of the treatment. And so the question is, you know, should we even, you know, or the 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 neuro oncologist should he, should should they even recommend chemotherapy, or sh- or should this patient be put in a clinical trial where they might benefit from another treatment that's let's say more suited for the for the kind of the, the specific phenotype of cancer that they have, and and perhaps have a better quality of life and and improve survival. So that's sort of the other question that that we've been focused on for the last few years. I see. And uh, personalizing treatment and uh, 
if some treatment has not is not required, then it also saves patients money. Is that also correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's financial toxicity. So, so of course, there's toxicity associated with the treatment itself, but the financial toxicity that comes with it. So, you know, we're talking about a brain tumor patient in the US, the, the costs of the treatment itself run in upwards of hundreds and thousands of dollars, right? So chemotherapy treatments just by themselves are, are you know, over $100,000. So, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the toxicity, treatment-related toxicity, but also financial toxicity that, that, that has a huge impact uh, on these patients. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes sense. So digging a little bit into the actual machine learning, right? So we are looking at some of your recent papers. In one of them, you have used support vector machines. I'm going to read out the title of the paper. Sure. The paper is Radiomics Approach to Distinguish Non-Contrast Enhancing Tumor from Vasogenic Edema on Multiparametric Pretreatment MRI Scans for Glioblastoma Tumors. Sorry if I got any of the pronunciations wrong. And the approach was support vector machines, good old feature pruning, and more what we would say classical techniques. And then you had a paper with more deep learning techniques, which was a hierarchical deep learning approach for segmentation of glioblastoma tumor niches on digital histopathology. We would love to understand how you went about choosing the tool here and which tool was necessary for which problem and why. Like why support vector machines made sense in the first case and why deep learning made more sense in the second case? Sure, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, I have I have a strong opinion about it, which may not necessarily resonate with the rest of the community here. So I want to sort of mention that before I answer the question. So the, 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 the way we've handled this dichotomy of whether to use deep learning or, or machine learning is really driven by the need in the field, right? So based on the conversations I've had and, you know, our group has had with uh, with our clinical collaborators, so so as I mentioned, you know, we work very closely with the neuro-oncologists, the neuroradiologists, neuropathologists. It's, it's become clear to us during those conversations that they care deeply about interpretability, right? They need to understand what's happening. You know, is it, you know, is it just a black box which will throw an answer and you you listen to that answer and follow whatever the, the black box is showing? Or, or is there a way that they can understand what's happening behind the curtains just so they can be more confident in the decision that's coming from that, from that model? So the way we've sort of addressed this, and you've nicely mentioned it with some of the papers that you listed, is when it comes to you know problems that don't directly have an impact on on the patient or the decision that the clinician has to make or the radiologist has to make we tend to rely more on a deep learning based approach so for example segmentation so you give an example of the, of the of one of an approach that we that we developed a segmentation approach where we used deep learning and similarly we've used deep learning for pre processing uh, you know, for, for quality assurance, for doing quality checks in our data, because the cost that ultimately, you know, the, the impact that it will have on downstream analysis is somewhat mitigated, you know, with as multiple steps go on. So if you miss one patient that should have been included in the machine learning model, you know, it's not necessarily going to have that massive of an impact on the ultimate decision. And so, so that's sort of what we use, we've primarily used deep learning for. And for for questions surrounding, you know, treatment decisions, like when we talk about, you know, personalized 
treatments that we that the model would sort of recommend let's say you know is this chemotherapy was was you know is it is the patient suited to get chemotherapy or not now this directly has an impact on how the treatment course is going to happen for this patient and so for those approaches or for example distinguishing radiation effects and tumor recurrence now the the model let's say the model says that you know there's 90% confidence in now, this lesion being radiation necrosis. Now, ultimately, this patient may not get a biopsy. And of course, that's ultimately the decision comes from the neuro, neuroradiologist, neuro-oncologist and the conversations they have. So it's not necessarily just the model, but the model is recommending that this, this specific image has, there's a high probability that this lesion is radiation necrosis. So there's sort of an ultimate, uh, ultimately, there's a cost associated with the decision that's being made. And so there we tend to rely more on you know, approaches that or feature extraction approaches that are more, well, I wouldn't say transparent, but translucent, where you could you could go to your, 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 your clinician, your clinical colleagues and explain to them that this is what's happening behind the curtains. This is what the model is trying to capture. And I'm, and, and I'm happy to share some examples of that on, you know, what exactly in terms of the pathophysiology of the disease that we try to model. But that sort of that approach is really has so far worked for us pretty well because we have clinical collaborators who really understand and appreciate the, the methods that are being developed in the group. And they ultimately become advocates of these approaches, you know, in, in the community just to just to make sure that there's more wide, widespread dissemination of these methods. Dr. Tiwari, that, that sounds fascinating. And uh, your collaboration with the clinicians and how these models are being developed with uh, the clinician in the loop are, is extremely important. But AI still faces this big hurdle of getting implemented in healthcare. What is your viewpoint on that? What kind of hurdles have you come across and some strategies to overcome that because there's a lot of research that is going on. The implementation aspects of that still remain a challenge in healthcare for sure. Yeah, so that's that's another excellent question. As you mentioned, you know, there's sort of multiple approaches, you know, machine learning approaches that are coming out almost every day now, but not many are getting translated. And I think there are multiple aspects to it, multiple nuances to it that 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 need to be better understood. The first aspect of this has to do with reproducibility, right? We have to build AI models, machine learning models that are reproducible, that, you know, can account for the differences in, you know, scanners. I mean, I'm talking about MRI scans because that's sort of what we primarily focus on, but this is a problem with with other other imaging scans and, and you know, even omics platforms, you know, that there's, there's, you know, different scanners, different platforms. So all of that, you know, in, introduces variability in your models. So the machine learning approaches that are being developed, the important aspect is to make sure that they are reproducible. And so for that, there needs to be extensive retrospective evaluation to first, you know, ensure that the model is, is holding up with data that is, you know, collected from different sites and different institutions. And that's sort of one, one thing that we tend to focus quite a bit on in our group. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons we have collaborations across, not just across the U.S., but internationally as well, because there's also differences in the way, you know, scans are obtained, let's say, in, in countries like India and China uh, as compared to, you know, the, the, the more modern 
scanners that are available within the US. So, you know, the model has to account for those differences as well. So that's sort of one aspect that needs to be carefully understood before we start to think about translating the technology. And then the second aspect is has to do with just sort of, you know, adoption from from the community itself. And I think that's where working closely with clinical collaborators becomes important because you may have the, the, the best algorithm out there, but at the end of the day, we have to keep the end users in mind, right? They need to, they need to feel comfortable using these models in, into their, their clinical practice. And so one, one way that we've been thinking about, you know, one direction that, that we've, been, we've been focused on more recently has been to sort of start to move these algorithms into clinical trials, prospective analysis to, you know, demonstrate the value of these models in a prospective setting. And that's sort of just to build, um, you know, more sort of leverage around the, around the algorithms to demonstrate to our clinical collaborators that the models are not only reproducible, but are also robust and, and, and you know, are, are, are accurate enough for them to feel comfortable and confident to start, start to use it in clinical practice. So that's very interesting. So w- what I understood that as is implementing algorithms in the field and getting buy-in from clinician and, and sort of getting their trust also built around the algorithms so that they're actually practically deployed. Am I understanding that right? Yes. So that leads me to a very interesting question. Your research is based on MRI scans. And what was interesting to me is people do MRI is anyway. So you didn't have to call in subjects to do some special scans and, you know, build research on top of that. Was that a conscious choice to, to be part of the workflow like that? Or did you come to it after struggling with something else? No, that was a conscious choice. So you've, you've, you're, you're spot on there. So that's, that's something that we did on purpose to start with, because as I mentioned, we have collaborators, not just within the US, but internationally. So one thing that, you know, we started to realize early on is, you know, let's say when we get scans from India, you know, actually, when we initially, when we started, we were only collaborating with, with folks here in the US. So, you know, we would get perfusion, diffusion, more advanced imaging, um, you know, PET spectroscopy, but as you start to expand out, you know, to, to start to collect data from, from, you know, institutions beyond, beyond your, you know, your, your, your Cleveland clinic, and then the top institutions within, within the U S then, you know, you, they, you may not have the luxury of the advanced imaging being available. So that was a conscious decision where we, we focused only on the scans that are routinely acquired. So in case of glioblastoma and, and actually for most neuron, neuroimaging applications, it's, it's high. So most of the, 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 the features that are being extracted or the features that we develop, they come from gadolinium enhanced T1, T2 and flare scans. I see. And what is interesting is collaborating with different organizations not just US, but internationally. So pardon me if my knowledge is a little inadequate here, but my understanding is every different scan, it will depend on the quality of machine and where you're taken it, what circumstances it was taken under. So the image quality might be a function of the source. And AI techniques are known to be sensitive to things like that. And 
I'm I'm wondering what what are your thoughts about some kind of normalization that might be required or how how are practitioners actually going about solving this problem? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And that's actually, you know, one of the things that we were dealing with, you know, recently. So my my colleague, Dr. Satish Vishwanath, who I collaborate with very closely. So his group and my group, we were sort of struggling with this challenge of identifying scans that, you know, ultimately will 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 result in a machine learning model that's sort of, you know, more robust and, you know, more reproducible, as I mentioned. And so the, the challenge in the community in general is, you know, what's called garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you have poor quality scans, you know, or just challenges with just, you know, the, the motion artifacts and the other artifacts that, that come with this, with this, with the with the scan itself, then that ultimately has an impact on your machine learning model. So Tisha's group and my group, what we did was we 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 came up with this this open source um, software that's called Marquee. M-R-Q-Y, we call it Marquee. It's publicly available. And so it's, I would want to give it a, give a shout out to it. You know, you can Google it, look it up online. And so that, so ultimately what the, the idea behind Marquee was that it's a, it's a graphical user interface. So you can upload your entire cohort of studies that you want to feed into your machine learning model. And, uh, it allows you to identify the outliers in your scans. It will provide you with the, you know, with with image quality measurements. So you know how good is the is, is the is the quality of the scan, the the artifacts that are the the, the more inherent artifacts in, in an MRI scan. So to sort of list all of those parameters and then the outliers in the model, right? So all of that information is very critical, as you as you correctly pointed out in in building the machine learning models. So even if you do end up taking the entire cohort it's important to be mindful of what's going into the model right and so this this marquee tool has been phenomenal for us it's actually been very very useful and we 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 use it almost exclusively for all our machine learning approaches you know since we have developed it because it's allowed us to you know identify the outliers so either do you want to include them do you want to exclude them same goes for poor quality scans and they ultimately what kind of impact it has on your machine learning models so you know that's sort of really uh, being a aware of it and sort of working on it actively has, has made us more appreciative of how important these these approaches to doing quality control and making sure that your data is, you know, being more aware of what the data is, what the input is to the model that ultimately has an impact on, on you know, how the model is being created and, and the output that you get in the end. That, that's that's fascinating, Dr. Zivari. But moving beyond the quality of data, one of the issues that the AI community and specifically AI healthcare community has been dealing with is the issue of bias. And we are understanding and learning more about this. It's not, not just about the data, but also about how different practitioners are looking at different models and the, the issues with model themselves. How do you view this issue of bias and talk to us about your efforts in supporting a diverse community of data scientists and engineers, especially women. You know, your leadership is truly inspirational in, in this area. So talk to us about these two issues, which kind of go hand in hand of bias in AI itself and diversity challenges for practitioners. Right. No, that's a that's a great question, Piyush. So, uh let me let me break it down into two different aspects and then i'll try to 
you know, bring them together towards the end. So the first aspect that you hit on is the diversity, right? The diversity in the data itself. And so that ultimately leads to biases in the machine learning model. And, you know, so if we, if we use US as an example, the data that we have primarily comes from institutions within the US and primarily Caucasian population. So the model is going to be biased towards Caucasian population. Now, the question is, does this model work on, let's say, you know, other population, Asians, you know, black, the, 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 the you know, the, the sort of African-American community. So that, that's that's a question that, you know, I think the machine learning community is sort of now starting to realize and, and be more appreciative of. In terms of our own efforts, you know, we've for now been focused, a big part of focus has been on, on gender diversity or sex-specific diversity. The reason why we started to look at, look at, you know, sexual dimorphism, as it's called, is because glioblastoma, this sort of, you know, this, this, uh, it's, it's known that men tend to have worse outcomes. First of all, they have, they have high likelihood of getting glioblastoma, and they tend to have worse outcomes. And so the question that we were interested in was, if we built a model that that's an all-comer model, as we call it, you have, you have men and women together, and then we, 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 we apply this model separately on men and separately on women, will the model still hold? And we weren't necessarily getting great results, as and as is actually shown in, in other papers as well. So what we then decided to do was actually address it, you know, by creating models that are more sex specific. So, you know, you create a separate model for men and a separate model for females. And the advantage that, that it, uh, it has is that, you know, then ultimately the treatment decisions will be different. And that links back to personalized personalizing treatments. So, you know, new data, recent data is suggesting that immunotherapy, for example, depending on the type of cancer that you have, the response to immunotherapy is, is different between men and women. And so that ultimately, you know, leads us to thinking towards personalized medicine. And that's that all of that goes back to your machine learning model. So if you create separate models for men and women, can you ultimately then make your model more personalized to a specific population? And then more recently, we've started to look at, you know, racial diversity as well, you know, differences in, in Caucasians, in, in, in African-Americans, you know, more recently, we've started a new collaboration with, with, with India. So, you know, just bringing in India and China, sort of bringing in Asian population as well. So, you know, that's sort of work in progress. And I think that's, that's it's, it's great that the community is becoming more aware and, and you know, and, and realizing that that's that has to be an important part of how the model training has to happen going forward. And then coming back to your second question about training, you know, women and and, and underrepresented minorities. You know, as I as I mentioned at, at the start, you know, I, I I'm an immigrant myself. I grew up in India, so and especially I actually I, I you know I was born in a small small town in India where back then at least you know several years ago when when I was born you know women women were still considered as you know someone who you know not necessarily study be at home raise kids and and you know that's sort of what what their jobs are it's of course changed over the years but but that's what I I, I grew up seeing and so you know of course my family was different they were very supportive of you know me studying and, and you know coming here and, and and doing research and so on but I wanted to pass that on. I wanted to ensure that there are, there are, there are, there are women, you know, especially from from places where they don't have the support that they need to be able to get the opportunities. You know, if if that's something they want to do, that there's an opportunity for them to do research. So, I've over the years I've become more active in being being a proponent of women. You know, being involving women in research and in STEM 
related activities. So both within the university, but outside as well in the in this community, especially if we talk about the machine learning AI community and, and medical imaging community, we don't really have as many women, you know, in the conferences that I attend are roughly 10 to 15% women that you see. So there's, you know, significant underrepresentation of women and, and, and also underrepresented minorities. So that's what I've, I've tried to do, you know, in my, the, 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 the efforts, the modest efforts that I've made so far have been just to promote women and, you know, providing myself as an example whenever I can to support them and, and, and ensure that, you know, that there are more women being represented in, in the community. And then going back to sort of tying this together and, you know, as you correctly pointed out, Piyush, if there are, you know, more women, more diverse populations, especially, you know, clinicians, researchers, there's going to be more awareness, right, of just understanding these implicit biases in the treatments, in the models, you know, everything, it sort of goes hand in hand, starting from the machine learning model, but then ultimately treating the patients and the impact that that these biases can have in, in, you know, in, in, in sort of treating these patients. So, you know, the more women we have, the more underrepresented population, the more diversity in, you know, in, in, in the clinic, in the clinical cohort, but also, but also in the in the academic setting, it ultimately will will lead to ensuring that you know we 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 go on to build a community that's you know more diverse and better represented. That's great, Dr. Varian. Each time I talk to you, I'm always inspired. I'm always thrilled to learn about your work, not just on the technical aspects, but going beyond beyond these technical issues and developing collaborations, developing these community aspects are always excited to hear from you but tell me what are you most excited about your work in the next 10 years you know there are all these grants which have come about they're very exciting a lot of work that i have to recognize that goes in on behalf of you and the team uh, that works with you what are you most excited about in the next 10 years in this field well i would say the thing that i'm most mostly excited about is the is the potential impact that these these approaches can have Right. So as I, as I previously mentioned, you know, this it's great to build these these fancy machine learning algorithms, you know, deep learning approaches, you know, come up with with the, with the best segmentation model that exists. But ultimately, to have impact, you want to make sure that it becomes available to the patient and it ultimately has an impact in, in, in you know, patient's quality of life or, or improving their survival. So one thing that we've started to do more recently is, you know, start to think about integrating our approaches into prospective clinical trials. And so one study that we are doing in collaboration with Cleveland Clinic is essentially sort of a limited clinical trial that should hopefully start in the next couple of months wherein we are going to use the machine learning approaches that we are building in, in, in neurosurgery. So essentially identifying the sites for biopsy for, you know, so, so essentially, let me sort of backtrack a little bit and explain what I mean. So, you know, these machine learning models that we create ultimately give you an idea of, let's say, where the cancer is, right, on an image. So it will think of it as a, as a, as a heat map where, let's say, red says cancer, blue says not cancer. And so if you can provide that heat map to, let's say, our neurosurgeon, neurosurgeon colleagues, they can use this map to ultimately identify where to go in and, and do the biopsy from, 
So, you know, we call this as a GPS map because it provides them with the coordinates of where to go and, and take the biopsy from. And the reason why this is important is because, you know, biopsies, of course, as you know, are not are not perfect, right? So it really depends on where they're taking the biopsy from and there are sampling errors associated with the biopsy. So if we talk about a brain, you know, biopsy in the brain, they are going to cut open the skull, take the biopsy, and then if the biopsy doesn't have enough information, then they can't just go back in and do this again. So we want to maximize the, the biopsy yield, as we call it. And so that's sort of one direction that we've started to take is to, you know, start to use these machine learning approaches in targeting biopsies. So that's sort of one aspect. And then the other thing that we are doing is also for the project that we were talking about for radiation necrosis and tumor recurrence to sort of, you know, start to use that approach into clinical trials, prospective clinical trials to see how these approaches can inform our radiologists in making better decisions in, in, in being able to distinguish these two pathologies. So these are sort of more short-term uh, things that are in the pipeline that we are going to do. But ultimately, the idea is, let's say, in five to 10 years that we are at a place where we've collected enough evidence to demonstrate that these methods really can have an impact you know, on, 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 on the patients, uh, let's say, in, in brain tumor population to then ultimately start to you know, impact their treatment decisions. So that's something that I'm, I'm very, very excited about. Very exciting future indeed. Unfortunately, we are out of time. We would love to continue talking because I have been sitting here completely enraptured listening to listening to you talk, Dr. Diwari. But unfortunately, we are at the end of another edition of BrainX Talks. I would like to make an appeal for all those interested. Please come to our LinkedIn page and be part of our BrainX community. Dr. Tiwari is part of it and what BrainX community is doing is trying to be a global diverse community, fostering collaboration amongst all. We just heard how important this is for the future of AI and healthcare. Please come join us. It costs you nothing. It's a great opportunity to learn and we would love to learn from you. Please visit brainxai.org for more information. Drop us a line for collaborations and we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Dr. Pallavi. It was really, really interesting and exciting for me. And I'm sure Dr. Mathur would say the same. And for all our friends, until next time, stay safe. And thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Alok and Piyush for having me.